Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Full steam ahead. The Democratic-led House of Representatives is moving briskly forward with its impeachment inquiry against President Trump. Pointing to a growing mass of evidence and accusations and ignoring Republican claims of unfairness, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she's ready to take the next step. With confidence and humility, with allegiance to our founders and a heart full of love for America, today I am asking our chairman to proceed with articles of impeachment. Seeking to rise above such scandal, the president went to Europe to meet with world leaders at the NATO summit in the U.K., Yet there, Trump faced confrontations over Russia, Turkey, and Syria, and an apparent mocking by other world leaders captured on video, including Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Trump departed early, but not before offering some choice words. Well, he's too fast. Do you think that Germany's too naive? And honestly, with Trudeau, he's a nice guy. I, I find him to be a very nice guy. But, you know, the truth is that uh, I called him out on the fact that he's not paying 2%, and I guess he's not very happy about it. And as the first votes in the 2020 election inch nearer, this week saw the end of three presidential campaigns. A notable senator who seemed poised for a rocket ride mostly sputtered beyond a few viral moments. Kamala Harris blames a lack of money and volunteers to keep her campaign aloft. It is with deep regret, but also with deep gratitude, that I am suspending our campaign today. But I want to be clear with you, I am still very much in this fight. Join us. What did you make of the scholars brought in to parse the constitutional meaning meaning and weight of impeachment? What do you think of the Democrats' decision to move forward to wrap up a vote before year's end? How does all this affect how you think about the president and the Democrats as we move to 2020? Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. We'd love to hear from you. We will also be hearing this hour from Washington, D.C., Vivian Salama. She's a White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Vivian, thanks for joining us on the show once more today. Hi, David. And also in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Sungmin Kim. She's a White House reporter who covers Capitol Hill for The Washington Post. Sungmin, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, David. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, on Point Zone, news analyst Jack Beatty joins us once more. Hello, Jack. Hello, David, Sung Min, and Vivian. So let's uh, start a little bit with hearing from House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler. He opened Wednesday's impeachment hearing by making clear his belief that President Trump broke the law by soliciting help from Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and thereby intervened in the 2020 elections. Nadler later, later went on to say this. We are all aware that the next election is looming. But we cannot wait for the election to address the present crisis. The integrity of that election is one of the very things at stake. The president has shown us his pattern of conduct. If we do not act to hold him in check now, President Trump will almost certainly try again to solicit interference in the election for his personal political gain. Sungmin Kim, uh the chairman uh, opened up these hearings. We heard from some constitutional scholars. Some of the questioning for the Democrats and the majority uh, on the House Judiciary Committee was led by Norm Eisen, who's both uh, been a guest on this show, but also uh, perhaps more importantly been an ethics official uh, previously in the Obama administration. What case did the Democrats seek to make by calling these uh, constitutional uh, scholars forward to testify in public? They were seeking to make a very solid legal case for impeachment. So what they wanted to do with this hearing was lay out the facts that we've already seen through the parade of witnesses that had come before the House Intelligence Committee and that extensive 300-page House Intelligence Committee report that we saw earlier this week um, and have the scholars weigh in and say, yes, the, the, the President Trump's conduct towards Ukraine does constitute impeachable conduct. And that was their goal in trying to frame that case 
choice for the American public to try to continue to persuade public opinion to their side and give uh, Democratic lawmakers who are preparing to vote on this uh, kind of evidence, if you will, to point to to make that case. Now, Republicans really uh, made their effort to puncture uh, the Democratic arguments in there. They brought their own witness, um, uh, a George Washington University professor, who said the country shouldn't rush into Jonathan Turley. Correct. Jonathan Turley here. And they are saying that they had made the case throughout the hearing and since the hearing that the three constitutional scholars called by Democrats were biased and that there is still nothing there, that the president did not commit impeachable conduct. So while the uh, fa- hearing may have been interesting and fascinating, particularly for the nerds and legal scholars among us, um, I think it, it may not have done more than to kind of harden the already very bitterly partisan corners that Capitol Hill is in right now. Okay. Vivian Salama, I want to play a couple more clips for you and let you also help us break this down. First, I'd like to go to House Judiciary Committee as top Republican. That's Georgia Representative Doug Collins. He argued against the impeachment hearings themselves as unfair and further argued that the constitutional law scholars who were testifying had little useful to add. But no offense to you, the law professors. The president has nothing to ask you. You're not going to provide anything he can't read. And his attorneys have nothing else. Put witnesses in here that they can be fact witnesses who can be actually cross-examined. That's fairness. And every attorney on this panel knows that. This is a sham. Stanford University uh, scholar, a law professor, and impeachment expert for the Democrats, Pamela Carlin testified uh, in Wednesday's Judiciary Committee hearing. She said President Trump's behavior was an abuse of power and that he needs to be held accountable. And then she took offense to Congressman Collins' opening statement. Here, Mr. Collins, I would like to say to you, sir, that I read transcripts of every one of the witnesses who appeared in the live hearing because I would not speak about these things without reviewing the facts. So I'm insulted by the suggestion that as a law professor, I don't care about those facts. But everything I read on those occasions tells me that when President Trump invited, indeed demanded foreign involvement in our upcoming election, he struck at the very heart of what makes this a republic to which we pledge allegiance. So Vivian Salama, without, we can get into the question of the implications for the voting population in a bit. But for the moment, did she and did those called by the Democrats make a sort of uh, a coherent fabric, uh, an understandable narrative that, that felt tight in terms of making the case for why this indeed rose to the level of what the Constitution calls high crimes and misdemeanors? I actually think um, the the difference between what Doug Collins was saying and what Pamela Carlin was saying is a little bit of an apples and oranges situation in the sense of, you know, Pamela Carlin um, insisting that she and uh, probably her counterparts also read the all the information in the report thoroughly and, you know, poured over the evidence, the facts, the testimonies that we heard, um, you know, in the uh, intel committee phase of, of this proceeding. But... Doug Collins is saying that we needed more witnesses um, and not, you know, that that this that they don't didn't have enough facts basically to analyze. And so and this is the argument that the Republicans are coming in with is saying that, you know, they're they're calling this the, the impeachment inquiry a sham because of the fact that they feel like they hadn't gotten enough witnesses to testify. There are a lot of other reasons why they think it's a sham, too. But, um, you know, that was one of their key arguments. And one of the key arguments that the White House is making, too, is that this this was not um, this was not something uh, that 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 is uh, that we can go by to basically establish um, any any legal precedent here or any legal uh, case against the president. And so that's sort of where things stood. Um, The three witnesses that were called by the Democrats, um, all of them uh, insisting that um, based on the evidence that was provided in the report, uh, the president's conduct, uh, the president's actions uh, did suggest, did imply that 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 it's impeachable conduct. However, um, the Republican, uh, Jonathan Turley, who was brought in, you know, he raised other issues as well. Now, one thing that he did say in his opening statement is that if it is established that there was a quid pro quo between um, Ukrainian aid uh, and the president asking for investigations into the Bidens, yes, that would probably be impeachable conduct. However, he insisted that um, there is a rush 
in Congress mm-hmm. to um, to establish this fact, and 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 that was one of the things that a lot of the Republicans sort of latched onto as well and said, you know, the, that. A, we don't have enough facts to conclude this. And B, um, one of the issues that he continuously raised was the issue of bribery, which is one thing that um, was argued quite extensively by these legal scholars, where he said, you know, you can't basically take this loosey-goosey interpretation of bribery um, and, and apply it to this to this situation because, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, there is no concrete legal definition argument for what exactly bribery is um and sure. so it was, it was an interesting it was an interesting academic debate as as sung min said for for the nerds among us you know it was a very interesting discussion however it did not really um advance the uh, the argument uh, on both sides at this point jack Beatty, i want to give you a chance to weigh in here turley uh, who was called by the republicans i remember him when i covered the clinton impeachment uh, two decades ago he was on the other side at that time arguing it was justified a couple of claims he made seemed a little stretched. He said this was the fastest impeachment in history. Peter Baker, the New York Times, pointed out actually the Clinton one moved a little quicker. There's some other things that were claimed by Turley. But nonetheless, what is – if the Democrats want to hold Trump accountable, what do you think ultimately the wisdom is here proceeding in this way uh, and in, with this process uh, against him to impeach him and send him for trial in the Senate? Well, uh, Professor Turley said uh, you're going to leave half the country behind. That is – uh, because the Democrats haven't called witnesses, more witnesses, uh, they won't they won't be able to convince or persuade such Republican or swing voters as might be persuaded that the president should be impeached and therefore it will leave them behind. The danger is worse than that, I think. You know, William James once wrote, there's always something permanently dark and bitter at the bottom of the cup. And what may be permanently dark and bitter at the bottom of this impeachment cup, justified as it is, is its effect on the body politic, uh, specifically on increasing the distrust of democracy among Republican voters. Just this week, I, I read about a study that showed that just in the last year, the percentage of Republicans who say that president could operate more effectively if he didn't have to worry about Congress or the courts has gone up nearly 20 points. That's to 43 percent now. This is a distrust of democracy that is, a, I think, the gravest problem facing us today. The impeachment hearings, justified as they are, could worsen that uh, distrust of democracy. You're hearing, you're hearing Jack Beattie talking about the latest in the impeachment inquiry. This week, impeachment handed over to the Judiciary Committee for hearings as Democrats move forward to craft specific articles of impeachment. We're taking your calls right after the break. I'm David Fulkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, there are other things that are going to affect your performance. And maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. 
And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm David Falkenflick. Is impeachment a lump of coal or a holiday treat? May well depend on how you think about President Trump's actions in office. Either way, Democrats intend to hold a vote on articles of impeachment before the holiday recess. And either way, it will be a historic and sobering moment. Later in the segment, we'll talk a bit about President Trump's trip to Europe this week for the NATO summit. We'd like you to join our conversation. How does the impeachment inquiry play where you live or in your home? We'll also talk about world leaders challenging Trump on policy and mocking him in private. What did you think of that viral video? Find us on Twitter and Facebook at On Point Radio. We have, as ever, a razor-sharp panel of guests this hour with me, Vivian Salama of The Wall Street Journal, Sung Min Kim of The Washington Post, and our own On Point News analyst, Jack Beattie. As promised, I want to take a few calls now. Uh, Let's first start with uh, Carl. He's calling in from uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Carl, thanks for listening. What do you think of what you're seeing play out in front of you? Well, first of all, when when you have a child doing something that's wrong, you have to punish that child appropriately, or they will never, ever learn the lesson. Donald Trump is like a child, and if they don't impeach him for involving uh, foreign governments in our elections, then he'll do it again. And if you think I'm kidding, case in point, Ruli Giuliani is in Ukraine right now. He still hasn't learned his lesson. <laughs> um, and, it, and as far as waiting around for the rest of the country to come along, I applaud Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats for stepping out and standing up for the Constitution. Because if we're waiting for evil evangelical hypocrites, uh, that's his base, to hold him account, uh, listen, they, they haven't held him account for being a racist. They haven't held him account for having an affair while his wife was pregnant and paying off porn stars. So mm-hmm. what in the world makes you think that he, that, that the evil evangelical hypocrites on the right are going to hold him account for, you know, having foreigners uh, interfere in our elections again? They're not. So they have to really stand up for constitutional principles and see something that's wrong and stand up for the Constitution because this thing is going to live way past Donald Trump. All right, Carl. Thank you for that. Uh, we we tend not to call it uh, punishment, but consequences is my home with with uh, with the girls. But I, I hear what you're saying. Let's take a call next from Framingham, Massachusetts. Uh, Beth is on the line. Uh, thanks for calling in, Beth. What what are your th- thoughts here? Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, mm-hmm. My concern. This is certainly nothing new in the Trump administration, but something that I think came into even sharper relief with the impeachment hearings um, this week is the the really blatant anti-intellectualism um, of Trump and a lot of his administration. Um, on the one hand, you have somebody testifying who has, you know, people who have dedicated their entire lives to um, legal, legal scholarship and, the, and trying to get into the mindset of the framers. And then on the other hand, you have someone who's testifying who bought his way with a $1 million contribution into being the ambassador to the EU. So mm-hmm. um, for Republicans in particular, it, it saddens me. I mean, having spent most of my life in the academy um, as a historian myself, seeing people um, being appointed to positions with no experience, and then seeing all of these references to the ivory tower. I mean, these are people who are not staying in the ivory tower. They're taking their decades of experience and research and hard work and trying to um, trying to use it to enlighten and, and really illuminate this process. And it just seemed like one more in a series of nails in, in the coffin of, um, of experience and, and education and intellectualism that is very disheartening to see. Thank you for that, Beth. Appreciate the call. And take one more call at the moment from uh, Mandeville, Louisiana. Charles, thanks for listening. Uh, tell us uh, w- what you take from all this. Hi, David. I just want to make a comment. Your panel member said, and, and she's truthful, that the main stance on the Republicans are going to be that they have been no factual witnesses testifying with firsthand knowledge 
of the orders given by the president. But the fact is that those very people who have firsthand knowledge would be the president's own staff that he has instructed not to show up for the subpoenas, and the documents that they've requested from the staff members have also been not presented at the impeachment hearings as well. All right. Thank you for that, Charles. And one more, uh, Annapolis, Maryland. Dave, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, hit me. What's, what are you thinking here? Well, the, the quick point I wanted to make was uh, that the Democrats are missing a, a key point here. And uh, it doesn't matter my, my party affiliation. As an American, I'm looking through the process here, and it seems to me that if the Democrats wanted to make their case, they've already made a very, very strong case as a basis. But I agree with Turley in saying that they're missing out on the most important mechanism, which is you've got all you've called the witnesses you could call. They, Trump is stonewalling on certain things and telling them not to testify. Then run it through the courts. Once you commit to an impeachment process, then it is they are beholden, I think, to run all of the mechanisms available to them, and that means also running this through the courts, however long it takes. When you commit, you commit to the process not your own timeline. And the Democrats mm-hmm. are missing a huge point in not pushing for that and running all available options wherever they take them, because that's the mechanism by which they could go to the Republicans then and say, we did everything we could, you stonewall, but you cannot call this a sham process. I appreciate that and your perspective and for your listening and calling in, Dave. Thanks very much for that. So Vivian Salama, we've heard from cross-section of people, uh, a lot of them in terms of these particular callers, uh, skeptical of the presidents or the, the Republicans, but some questioning whether the process is the right way to do it. Democrats are also finding themselves attacked by uh, their conservative counterparts on the other part of the aisle, but also questioned at times by reporters on their motivations. Uh, as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was leaving her press conference yesterday, a reporter asked about the Republicans' assertion the impeachment inquiry is motivated by Democratic hate of the president. She went back to the lectern and took strong offense to that. As a Catholic, I resent your using the word hate in a sentence that addresses me. I don't hate anyone. I was raised in a way that is full, a heart full of love and always prayed for the president. And I still pray for the president. I pray for the president all the time. So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. Vivian, uh, Nancy Pelosi later on to CNN's Jake Tapper pointed out uh, the questioner uh, was it was James Rosen of Sinclair uh, Broadcast Group, television major local TV owner, uh, late of Fox News. Legitimate question? Um, well, uh, the president definitely has uh, has suggested, you know, maybe not in those words, but has suggested that she has an axe to grind um, when it comes to him. And, and this is, you know, driven in part by her own, you know, personal motivations or anything like that. Um, hate may be too strong a word. Uh, you know, it's it's it, from Nancy Pelosi. This has been a journey. And, and, you know, those who cover Congress can tell you better than me that, you know, it, she was not on board with this. She was very, very hesitant to go through with this impeachment to begin with. And only um, when the whistleblower complaint, the, the reports of the whistleblower complaint had emerged, did she start to think that perhaps there is um, a case for impeachment. But mm-hmm. before that, she was very skeptical. And she has every right to be. You know, you look at the Democrats in Congress right now, and they are not unified in in, in backing this impeachment in terms of there's, a, there's varying levels of hesitation um, among Democrats. Uh, a lot of them uh, from from swing districts um, that are going into a very uh, you know tough election year, and uh, you know they they they're thinking of their constituents back home and and what the 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 opinion the popular opinion is toward impeachment and a lot of them um, you know trying to kind of play this delicately in terms of you know. Maybe they support certain articles of impeachment, but not others, just to show that they're not sort of um, just going full blast into this, and that they're trying to be um, somewhat skeptical and and analyzing the the information that they have. But for Nancy Pelosi, um, this this is she knows what an impeachment does to a country, and uh, um, you know the the divisions that it, it can cause. And so um, obviously that was a moment uh, that we saw there where she said it's not about me and him; it's about the country, and she really pushed back hard on that. But it was a pretty extraordinary moment for sure. Sung Min, uh, the House Intelligence Committee released call logs this week that revealed 
uh, ranking member Devin Nunes of California had multiple phone calls with Rudy Giuliani and Rudy Giuliani's associate Lev Parnas. Parnas was arrested in October for charges uh, related to linking diplomacy with violations of campaign finance law. Nunes appeared multiple times at Fox News to address this revelation. And the first time he told Fox's Sean Hannity he didn't remember it. The second time he said it wasn't that big a deal. That was right when Robert Mueller completely bombed and flamed out. So I remember talking to Rudy Giuliani, and we were actually laughing about how Mueller bombed out. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe they have the recordings of my phone calls with Rudy Giuliani. Uh, They're welcome to play them because everything I spoke with Rudy Giuliani about is nothing that I wouldn't care if the American people found out. Now, Sungmin, our first caller, Carl, uh, called up and he mentioned Giuliani's reemergence in Ukraine uh, this week as just sort of, you know, uh, uh, balls like crazy off the charts. <laughs> like what does it say that the president's personal attorney uh, is back in Ukraine when Ukraine is at the center stage for this uh, high stakes impeachment drama playing out in the nation's capital right now? I mean, it certainly raises a new round of questions about um, the president's personal attorney's conduct, what he's actually trying to accomplish uh, in Ukraine right now. Is he having conversations with the president about it currently? Um, and that's why, I mean, you heard Nancy Pelosi say this at the town hall, right? A town hall last night while, you know, while she kind of kind of initially dismissed it and said, you know, there, you know, I can't keep track of all of Rudy's, uh, Rudy's activities. She also did raise concern about what this means for the future. And I think that goes back to a broader point that we've discussed earlier and why um, while many Democrats from the Speaker Pelosi on down have been pretty reluctant about pursuing this impeachment inquiry, pursuing this impeachment investigation against the president, um, they say it's a necessary one because they want to deter this type of conduct in the future. I also think that um, there has been a lot of questions about what the ranking member Devin Nunes was talking about in those phone in the in those phone conversations that were disclosed as part of the intelligence report committee and part of the logs as well and while he's not you know directly answering what that was about that's created a lot of additional tension in the house intelligence committee which up until you know essentially the trump presidency had been a very bipartisan collaborative committee and i think we just see how um that's another example of just how much that had been eroded in the last couple of years now, Jack Beatty, uh, the president, went abroad uh, at the start of the NATO summit uh, in London, uh, and he was speaking to reporters uh, that trying to kind of get a reset in how people were thinking about what he was doing, talk about you know how he's on a world stage, and yet he still couldn't help quite escape from impeachment. He said Democrats have gone nuts. They're crazy. Impeachment's bad for the country. He pushed back then on reports. Some House Republicans are privately suggesting there should be a vote to censure the president to enable him to avoid impeachment. I don't want him to go to censure. I did nothing wrong. I don't mind being censured if you do something wrong. I did nothing wrong. I had a great conversation, very respectful conversation with the president, a good person, by the way, with the president of Ukraine. Uh, it was uh, flawless. People have analyzed it from 15 different ways. It was flawless. Jack Beatty, how well was the president able to uh, comport himself? What was he able to accomplish on the world stage when he went to London surrounding himself with world leaders uh, at that NATO summit? Well, uh, paradoxically, he came out with a full-throated defense of NATO against uh, the carping, as he saw it, of um, of the French. Uh, <laughs> Macron's comment that NATO was brain dead. He said, that's a dangerous thing to say about this enduring alliance. It was, that was quite a surprise. And of course, people have speculated that uh, maybe uh, Macron made that statement uh, as a way of um, having Trump, so Trump could take the opposite position. Uh, but of course, he did, and will be. it will be remembered uh, for the, the moment where uh, Macron and uh, Trudeau and other and Boris Johnson were laughing seemingly at some of the president's uh, comments, um, and that is now in a, an ad by Joe Biden. However, I wonder about that. I wonder about the political uh, efficacy of such an ad in a general election. To have a president of the United States laughed at by uh, a French president, a British prime minister, a Canadian prime minister. That's not the worst thing in the world uh, for many Americans. Uh, hmm. And this goes to the a point that uh, that Beth made, that this is kind of anti-intellectualism, but it's also an anti-elitism that is the populist element in the Republican Party. 
that is, you know, in other words, the president could even run that that ad and say, yeah, they were laughing at me because I'm sticking up for you and I don't uh, I don't do these fancy things with foreign people. I, I'm not saying that that's a, a, a majority sentiment, but you can't miss the the how in the treatment of the of the witnesses by the Republicans, you can't miss that anti-intellectualism is money in the bank for uh, Republican populists. Nonetheless, a somewhat subdued President uh, Trump left early, saying he foreswore the uh, the press conference he had, he had planned uh, and made a surprise tariff announcement. Vivian Salama, you uh, covered the White House with a focus on foreign policy. You used to cover uh, news from the Middle East for the Associated Press. I wanted to turn a little bit to reports that have been verified about violence in Iran that in some ways seem to have outstripped uh, uh, at least the mortality rate of the protests during the you know Green Uprising some years ago there. Uh, tell us a little bit about what we've learned and what what you think it means. Well, um, in recent months, uh, in recent weeks, uh, protesters have um, have really been pushing back on um, uh, uh, against the against the government in Iran with regard to um, the price of oil and another a number of other issues. Uh, obviously, pro democracy protests in general um, have been a theme in Iran's uh, recent. Um, Recent history, especially, um, and so uh, those protests have been quite violent in recent weeks, and um, it's 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 been spiraling and causing a great uh, great deal of concern for um, the U.S. Obviously, not just because of the hiked price of gasoline, which impacts markets everywhere, but because of the fact that you know this regime is is resorting to a brutal crackdown against its own people and. Um, the U.S. government in general has has obviously the Trump administration has been uh, very um, anti-Iran and uh, have really been trying to push for some sort of um, regime change from within um, in terms of uh, trying to you know inspire the the Iranian people to kind of look to their future and 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 find an alternate path for themselves and so um, at this point. The U.S., you know, because of the fact that they've pulled out of the Iran uh, nuclear agreement and they have imposed um, pretty crippling sanctions on Iran, the government uh, has really been feeling the pressure. And so obviously um, the the citizens of their country um, rising up against them uh, because of that. And that's what the Trump administration has said is, you know, at the end of the day, they're always going to support the protesters because – they believe that the protesters in Iran know that the real enemy is the regime in Tehran and not the U.S. or any other outside governments. And so um, they've been putting out statements in support of the, the Iranian protesters. But um, at this point, uh, you know, that situation continues to spiral with no, no real end in sight. Coming up, we'll be discussing the state of the 2020 race. Kamala Harris is out. A big endorsement arises for Joe Biden. Elizabeth Warren has an emotional moment on the trail. And Pete Buttigieg experiences some unexpected criticism. Who's in and who's out of the next debate? We'll talk about it all. We want you to join in our conversation. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. This week, three presidential candidates ended their campaigns, leaving a still crowded race for the Democratic nomination. As they look ahead to the PBS Politico debate later this month, some candidates say the rules are stacked against minority uh, candidates and give an upper hand to billionaires who can cut checks to keep their campaigns flush. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook and On Point Radio. With me, guests who can clear out the clutter. They've been at the center of some of the biggest stories this week. Vivian Salam is a White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal. 
Journal. Sungmin Kim covers the White House for The Washington Post. And we, of course, have our own on-point news analyst, Jack Beatty. I want to start uh, with a moment. Campaigns often seek to control what happens uh, on the trail to keep everything on message for their candidates. Yeah, you can't always script or anticipate what will actually happen once you're there. At an event for Elizabeth Warren in Marion, Iowa, a 17-year-old posed an unexpected and emotional question to the senator, and the teen got an unrehearsed response. I was wondering if there was ever a time in your life where somebody you really looked up to um, maybe didn't accept you as much and how you dealt with that. Yeah, my mother and I had very different views of how to build a future. She wanted me to marry well, and I really tried, and it just didn't work out. And there came a day when I had to call her and say, this is over. I can't make it work. I heard the disappointment in her voice. Warren called the teen uh, over. The two hugged as the the senator comforted her. Uh, The teenager later told ABC News she identifies with the LGBTQ community and said she was prompted to ask that question by conversations with her family over Thanksgiving. Uh, I want to now talk about some of the dynamics that are playing out in the race. With California Senator uh, Kamala Harris, she's dropping out of the race. There will no longer be uh, any candidates of color left on the debate stage uh, coming up uh, later this month. New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, an African-American, spoke in an interview on MSNBC's uh, Morning Joe, and he blamed the DNC's debate qualification rules. I am concerned that the unintended consequences of the rules that have been written allows a billionaire, and by the way, there will now be, if this debate stage stays what it is right now, this 2020 election will have more billionaires than black people. Um, um, that, that allows billionaires to be uh, on that stage and, and, and not people that have legitimate chances to win the nomination. The billionaires on that stage, uh, Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg. Here's where minority candidates in the race stand in terms of qualifying for the debate on the December 19th. Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard need one more qualifying poll, but uh, Booker and Julian Castro have not hit 4% in any poll that would gain them entry on the debate stage. Pete Buttigieg is obviously the first uh, – uh, Buttigieg, excuse me, is obviously the first openly gay major candidate for president. Sung Min Kim, what is the dynamic at work there? Is uh, Cory Booker right? Is this about the ability of billionaires to throw millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars at ads? Is this about the way in which the DNC has stacked uh, the schedule? Uh, what's at play here? I think the broader dynamic here is that we've gone from this historically large Democratic candidate field that was historically diverse in so many ways through gender, through race, uh, sexual orientation. And because of the um, because of the strict rules that the Democratic National Committee has written um, and we can quibble with and the candidates can certainly quibble with whether those rules are fair or not. And they certainly have through the process that you are, you know, you are uh, dwindling the stage in the debate later this month to, at least for now, a, 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 um, a debate stage that is not racially diverse. And I think that is a really um, sensitive um, criticism and a sensitive point for a party that has really championed um, its diversity. I mean, Nancy Pelosi talks all the time about the diversity in all the respects in her House Democratic Caucus. And I think that's something that um, that is a really big focus point for the party right now, and it's even more um, and it's even more coming to view with Senator Kamala Harris dropping out earlier this week. She's a you know, the black woman running for ple- president. She's also half Asian, and I think that that issue of race that just that issue that whole issue had been underscored right now, and I think that's also um, clearly Senator Booker can point to the billionaires case, but I know, but but clearly the lack of uh, candidates of color on that stage right now is a, is a glaring one that people are clearly watching. Jack Beatty, what and, do you make of... I'm sorry, Jack. Yeah, I was going to ask you, but go right ahead. Go ahead. I, I, and, and just to pick up on that, uh, you know, Julian Castro narrows it even uh, closer and points out the 
unrepresentative character of these two uh, first states. Iowa, mm-hmm. 3% black. New Hampshire, up here in <coughs> white world, 2% black, 3% Hispanic. The U.S. as a whole, 17% Hispanic, 12% black. And in the 2016 election, only 34% of whites voted for Clinton, 84% of blacks, and yet they are not represented. They are simply not of an account in these two uh, overwhelmingly white states. And I think this party has got to have a, uh, you know, they've got, they've got to really reconsider uh, reconfiguring their primary schedule to meet uh, their constituents, to, you know, to let the people who really represent the party uh, vote first. So, you know, there's a charming idea where, what is it, Dixville Notch in uh, upper New Hampshire gets to be the first uh, thing to sort of weigh in or first area to weigh in and vote in a, a tiny population. But you're saying in a sense, writ large, uh, the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire get to do that themselves may prove, if quaint and a throwback, uh, unrepresentative uh, of, of where the larger party and perhaps where the nation might find itself. I think so. Now, against my point, and Castro, you can cite uh, 2008 when Barack Obama won in Iowa, and I think that's a that's a good example. They will support a minority candidate there in those caucuses, but crucially, as I remember that at least, uh, the cutting issue for a candidate Obama was his opposition to the Iraq War. And that went over very big with activists, Democratic activists in Iowa, whereas Hillary Clinton was shackled to it. All right. Let's take some calls first from Mount Jackson, Virginia. Stephen, thanks for listening. Uh, tell us your thoughts about this field. Hi there. I'm a moderate Democrat, and I'm chagrined by the what appears to be the, uh, the choices, which it seems to me it's going to come down to Biden, Warden, or uh, Bernie Sanders. And uh, with Biden's misstep as Jack Beatty pointed out with regard to uh, making a campaign ad out of something that people around where I live in rural Western Virginia but just thought that was the greatest thing in the world, and for exactly the reasons that he said. Uh, I I don't see anything moderate, which is causing me to look at Buttigieg, who doesn't have much experience, and I I just don't think any of these three that you know the top candidates, Warren, Biden, Sanders, beat Trump. And I long for somebody who takes a more moderate position, isn't going to spend my wallet uh, for things that will not work, I don't believe will work, like Elizabeth Warren's uh, uh, plans, which seem to vary depending mm-hmm. upon the day and week, et cetera, so on and so forth. So I'm sitting here wondering, like, oh, man, four more years of Trump, please, no way. But I don't see anybody beating them. I wish Mitch Landro would have ran, for example. And that's my comment. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Stephen. Vivian Salama, let me let me pose that to you. He's a moderate Democrat, says Kamala Harris is gone. Uh, maybe Pete Buttigieg uh, will, will take care of me. But where are the moderate Democrats? You know, Joe Biden, uh, you know, in some ways in the Senate was known for that. Uh, who's who's offering that with with the with the disappearance of Kamala Harris? Who, who could fill that role for for voters? I mean, you probably just said it, is that I think Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg believe in themselves to be sort of that moderate offering for for the Democrats. Um, and and there's a reason that those those are dwindling in the sense that the party is starting to shift more to the left. And so um, that, you know, at least in this phase, um, you're going to see a lot of the candidates really going out and um, trying to appeal to those sort of far left voters who um, – you know, will um, rally for them and distinguish them during the primary phase. But at the end of the day, the, the, the pattern among Democrats tends to be that once they get the nomination, they tend to go a little bit more to the center so that they could start appealing to um, maybe uh, Republicans who don't like the incumbent president or, um, you know, undecided voters or, you know, people, you know, independents and whatnot. And so um, that is just the pattern that we've seen in previous elections. And so for now, um, Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg, 
you know, kind of adhering to that ideology up front and saying that they kind of represent um, the best choice across the board for even the independents and others who um, might be afraid of someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, the president and a lot of Republicans deem them to be almost, you know, socialists. And it's a scary concept for a lot of people who are in the middle. And so um, that's sort of the balance of powers that we have in the Democratic Party right now. But um, certainly uh, a lot of that shifts once we get into the general election stage. And Bernie Sanders, of course, uh, was the Democratic Socialist uh, mayor of Burlington, Vermont, and was uh, independent and socialist in Congress before he switched the Democratic Party as he ran uh, for president. I want to pick up on the question of Joe Biden, uh, Jack Beatty. During a town hall in Iowa on Thursday, uh, a voter, man, uh, rhetorically attacked Biden by accusing him of being physically unfit to be president and for selling access to the presidency during his time as vice president. The man referred to Hunter Biden, uh, that's uh, Vice President Biden's son, Hunter Biden's position on the board of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma Holdings, a source of obsession for President Trump and of criticism from uh, clean government advocates given Biden's role on Ukraine for the Obama White House. The man claimed Biden had gotten his son that position, an allegation for which there's no known evidence. Biden fired back at the accuser by questioning his sources and by qu- calling him a damn liar. Here's of some of what else Biden had to say. Look, the reason I'm running is because I've been around a long time and I know more than most people know. And I can get things done. That's why I'm running. And you want to check my shape on it, let's do push-ups together, man. Let's do, let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. Let's take my nice pizza. Number two, number two, no one has said my son has done anything wrong. I did not on any occasion. And no one has ever said it. Chuck Beatty, how is uh, Biden doing addressing these concerns and knocking down some of the president's conspiracy theory, even as there are some questions about what Hunter Biden did? Well, uh, turning on Morning Joe this morning, they all said, oh, good for you, Joe, showing a flash of anger, defending your family. On the other hand, he had no answer for this. This is clearly some kind of nepotism. Is is fifty thousand dollars a month is beyond what any American can imagine for this young man who knew nothing about the mining, and and Biden had no answer for it. You know, there is an answer, and it was given uh, in the some of the testimony uh, by uh, uh, some of the ambassadors who who spoke. Uh, uh, about about criticisms of Biden of of this arrangement w- that Hunter had made during the Obama administration, and and it, the criticism reached the vice president's office, and they, they were told uh, the, the the vice president's son Bo is dying. He doesn't have bandwidth even to consider this question. I'm not saying the president the, the vice president should say, look, I was in a complete uh, fog. I was I was I was grieving. I was losing and and I paid no attention to this. If I had, if I had my faculties there, I would have said, "Hunter, think this through." I mean, this isn't going to do any good for anybody, especially for me politically, because he wouldn't right. say that. But so in other words, there is a there is an explanation and it was the one given there there, but it gets us back to the grief-stricken uh, vice president. I want to take a quick call now from Enid, Oklahoma. Teresa's been waiting patiently. Teresa, uh, tell us your thoughts a little bit about this Democratic field. Yes, thank you so much. As uh, an elder, uh, a woman, and a person of color, uh, I feel like you're being disingenuous about the uh, candidates who are people of color, the two people who still qualify for the race and are in the race. Uh, are Yang and Gabbard. I feel like uh, that the media is underestimating uh, the public. We are sick of corruption. We're sick of corporatism. And we are not moving uh, too far left. We're already too far right. We're just trying to get back to where we were. And if you've traveled in any other uh, first world country, you know, they're far ahead of us and every single one of them are social democracies. There is not one single democracy in this world that doesn't have facets of socialism in it because capitalism alone and socialism alone do not work. Capitalism turns into fascism, which we saw in Germany, and socialism turns into communism. So uh-huh. this spin is 
part of the media's responsibility, and you're not taking your role. You're- Thank you for that, Theresa. We do take our role seriously. We appreciate your perspective. I wanted to turn now and just end this hour with some uh, words about an issue that has been uh, – uh, rending for communities across the country. Uh, there was, of course, uh, a shooting uh, down in Texas. Uh, uh, Botham Jean uh, was murdered in his apartment uh, some time ago by police officer Amber Geiger. Uh, his brother uh, accepted the Ethical Courage Award on Tuesday from a group that trains police officers. Here's 18-year-old Brant Jean, African-American's mis- message to the Institute for Law Enforcement Administration. I want you all to know that I am not a threat, that young black males are not inherently dangerous or criminal. I want you to ask yourself, what are you doing to ensure that there will be no other families like mine? That's the kind of issue that uh, some have said uh, might not be raised by Democratic candidates, but are be- is being raised by uh, people questioning Mike Bloomberg for his, some of his policies when he was mayor of New York. We've been hearing this hour and benefited from the insight of Vivian Salama. She's a White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Vivian, thanks so much for joining us once more today. Great to be here. And Sungmin Kim, thank you for joining us once more. Sungmin is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. Thanks, Sungmin. Hey, thanks for having me. And of course, we've had our own Jack Beatty on points, a news analyst. Jack, great to have you once again. Thank you, David. You can continue the conversation, get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org, and you can follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. On Point's produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Daum, Eileen Amata, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Alex Schroeder, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller, with help from Sharif Campbell, Jeffrey Line, and Sidney Wertheim. Our executive producer is Karen Schiffman. Thank you for listening today. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.